Good evening, everybody. Good evening and welcome back to the Mythgard Academy class on the Dispossessed. This is class number two on the Dispossessed. Thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, so glad to be back here with you thinking uh, about this book, which has been so much fun uh, to think about. It's funny, I was sort of confessing uh, earlier on uh, this past weekend at Midmoot, actually, that uh, although I, I find Le Guin, she is such a brilliant writer. I, I mean, it's just, I'm, uh, I'm just amazed at how smart her books are, how incredibly well-written they are. Um, I was confessing that I, I rarely find her books fun. Like, I, they're not books that I usually like go back to and reread for fun. I, that's, I'm, I'm not saying nobody does, but, but that's just, it's never been me. Um, but boy, teaching them is sure fun. <laughs> going through, uh, going through these classes, even just planning and thinking about these classes has been, uh, has been really great. Um, so I'm looking forward uh, to uh, to tonight's class and getting through, you know, most of chapter three and chapter four. I think we'll I think we'll pretty much finish that up. You know, not much left to say, I'm sure, by the end. Um, but first, announcements and reminders. Of course, we are in. We were on the cusp of last week, and now we are in the midst of our fundraising campaign. Uh, it is time to support Signum University and the Mythgard Institute and all of these programs that you love. Remember that everyone who donates uh, to support the Signum University Annual Fund gets voting rights in the Mythgard Academy. So everybody who donates anything um, gets the right to be able to vote on uh, on which books we do next in the Mythgard Academy. Uh, and if you donate $100 or more, then you get to be on the Council of the Wise and you get to make nominations for the uh, for the book. I wanted to, uh, of course, to clarify that that's, it doesn't have to be $100 in a lump sum. Uh, if you, you can give uh, a small amount monthly, if you were to subscribe and give, you know, nine, 10 bucks a month, um, then that would, that would come out to more than $100 a year and thereby entitle you to nominating rights and a seat, would give you a seat on the Council of the Wise. Um, so uh, anyway, Okay, um, so uh, yes, and for those of you who didn't make class last week, yep, this is a new setup. This is a whole new program we're experimenting with, or rather I'm experimenting with it, and you guys are the guinea pigs. Um, so uh, yeah, Karita, I see your chat there. That's exactly uh, that's exactly the thing. Um, Noam says that I am weird. I, I, Noam, I assume you're, I, I'm weird for not having fun reading Ursula Le Guin, probably. And I, I, you know, Noam, I am so unsurprised to learn that you have fun reading Ursula Le Guin. I would have, I would have thought that that was the case. Uh, so not at all, not at all surprised to hear that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, like I said, just a little confession uh, from me. Uh, so anyway, yeah, so I hope that you guys are able to, um, when you type stuff in the chat box, you won't see it pop up right away, but I'm able to see it like, like the old one basically. Um, so that that should be okay. We should be able to follow along with that, okay? And uh, you guys can see the slide, right? Uh, this that that's one of the things that I like best about this uh, is that we've got the slides, and I can uh, I can draw on them and do all sorts of fun things that I couldn't do before. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, and you can see me moving the cursor, which I'll try not to do compulsively. Uh, yeah, exactly, because I can, but I can do, but I I I, I like being able to do that. Um, yeah, Kristen, I know I tend to I tend to rest my hand on the mouse, and then sometimes when I'm talking, I'll just like gesticulate with the mouse, which can be I know perhaps a little bit annoying. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, uh, 
yeah, the, yeah, I know there's a running the the running timer creator were there kind of kind of teasing me about that last time, and um uh, and it, and it, and it records automatically, which I absolutely love. Um, so uh, so yeah, yeah, and there is um there is the live chat. If you go to the mythguard.org uh, page, the 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 dispossessed page in the academy menu, uh, there's a live chat there uh, as before. Uh, so that's um so that's fine. Yeah, Giannis says if seen me talk live before and they're amazed i managed to stay to stay sitting you know funny story about that yana the, i i used to i've learned to teach while sitting down mythgard has taught me like mythgard and sigma have taught me over the years um when i was just like teaching in a brick and mortar environment i i couldn't sit down and teach. i was so boring when i sat down i had to stand every time every time i was in a classroom i always had to stand up and i um so the very first time when I first started teaching my first, like in the first semester, um, you know, in the uh, fall of 2011, I was worried about it. I'm like, I can't sit in front of a computer. I'm going to be really dull and boring. So I actually stood. I was, you can kind of see if you watch the, uh, you know, and those of you who have very long memories may recall, I was actually standing for the first couple of classes because uh, I thought like that's totally what I had to do. Um, but then I, I, I was like, okay, this is really, cause I, it's, it's actually harder to stand because I can't wander around. Like when I'm standing in a car, I wander around the room and up and down the aisles, even sometimes and everything like, all over the place. And, uh, and I, you know, so when I was standing, it was harder cause I'd like start wandering off and I'm like, Oh no, wait, I have to get back in front of the camera. Uh, so that was actually turned out to be harder. So I, so I, I, I've learned in time to just, uh, uh, sit and uh and 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 try not to be try not to be uh, uh as uh, uh as as boring um all right um so uh, oh yeah uh, uh noam curtis is pointing out that you can also uh, in addition to the chat room another thing of course that you can do and I actually i've been meaning to mention this for a while um another thing that you can do is uh we, we encourage if you want a live tweet from the class uh, that's always really fun. You can get some sort of Twitter discussions going on. Um, you can uh, mention us uh, here at, uh, at 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 MythGuardian, as Curtis was pointing out, uh, and then uh, you know on on the MythGuard Twitter feed we can uh, we can we can retweet you and stuff. So that's always fun. I was I pray, those of you who follow me on Twitter uh, will have noticed my bombardment of posts from this past weekend as I was live tweeting all of Midmoot. I wasn't presenting, but I was uh, enjoying all the presentations and I was sitting there and live tweeting them all. It was really fun. Um, so uh, yeah, and uh, oh, and, and again, for those of you who are new, there is uh, there is an app, I believe there's an app on both Android uh, and, uh, and iOS uh, for this click meeting is the name of the program that we're using here. Um, and uh, the iOS app seems to work okay. The iPad version seems to me a little bit, I think it's designed for iPhone. I don't really know. iPad version doesn't seem to work well as far as I can tell, but the iPhone version works fine. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kristen, you saw my live tweeting, and Kristen is taking this opportunity to agree that I really do need to watch Babylon 5. And uh, Neil Ottenstein, who's here tonight, uh, and whose talk I was live tweeting when I was bringing up the fact that, uh, you know, Neil, during your talk, I, you know, I was saying uh, another year listening to Neil talking about Babylon 5 and yet again uh, resolving that I must certainly watch this show. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, um, that's that's totally that's totally going to happen. Someday it's going to happen. And as I've said before, if they would get to Netflix, it would happen even sooner. Um, okay, so good. 
let's, uh, let's, oh wait, hang on. Uh, a couple other reminders, and I've gotten all distracted now. A couple other reminders and announcements. So, um, I was talking about voting rights, right? Nominating privileges. Um, uh, w when you donate, you do also get if you if you donate more than hundred dollars, you also get access to, to to old Signum courses. So you get uh, you get sort of a you know a, a a key to one or more rooms in our vault, uh, which is which is really cool. Um, but don't forget that uh, tomorrow night special extra bonus session, right? One of the one of the many special events that we're doing during this you know this uh, five week campaign that we do every fall. To sort of celebrate our MythGuard programs and uh, uh, and uh, you know sort of raise awareness for the the fundraising campaign that we're doing. Um, I'm doing a special MythGuard Academy one-shot class, uh, and we're doing the story Nightfall by Isaac Asimov, which I had never read before, but I just read yesterday, and it is awesome. Man, what a great story that is! Uh, I think it's the. It, it's, I mean. Uh, I was just about to say, I think that's the best uh, uh, science fiction short story I've ever read, which is probably why it's been voted like greatest science fiction short story of all time uh, by people who know even more about that uh, than I do. But yeah, the short story, not the novel, no, I'm exactly, thank you for pointing that out. There's a novelization. We're not doing the novel. The short story, it's quite short. Um, there's, a, there's, there's a free um, audio version available through uh, the podcast Escape Pod. Um, and uh, you can, that, that's what I listen to. Uh, it's only an hour and a half long. Um, so anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's fantastic. I can't wait to talk about Nightfall. So that's going to be tomorrow night, same time. And, um, and we're going uh, we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna talk about Nightfall. Okay, so that's going to be tomorrow night. And because this is a special event during the campaign, there's also going to be other cool stuff that's going to be happening tomorrow night. We're going to have a special, uh, a special, a special auction uh, uh, which I'll tell you more about tomorrow night. Um, and that is that going to be there's going to be an extra special Mythgard Academy prize that I'm going to be sort of auctioning off during tomorrow night's uh, session. And uh, we're going to have uh, drawings for door prizes and things. It's going to be great. Um, so there, there there will be Mathems distributed. Uh, uh, it's going to and and of course like you know possibly the greatest science fiction short story of all time discussed. So that's going to be great. Um, so again, that's tomorrow night. Um, the link for that uh, is available if you go to, uh, again, go to thesignumuniversity.org, go all the way to the right to the donate button, and then you'll see there the, uh, the, the, the campaign page or the campaign events pages, and those will, those will give you all the details that you need there. Um, and as Curtis has very thoughtfully pointed out, that is the event page right there. That's the link for those of you who are here to uh, where you can get the information to register for the nightfall class. So, okay, so that's tomorrow night. Um, and one last thing, this coming Saturday uh, is going to be the next uh, the next campaign event that I'm doing, uh, and that is my Lord of the Rings Online marathon stream. My Hobbit Grifflet, who I've been broadcasting every week, in his trip through the uh, through the epic quest line in the Lord of the Rings Online, is going to undertake a great labor uh, for the support of the Signum University Annual Fund, and that is his marathon trek, uh, the Long Dark of Moria, from Westgate to Dimrild Dale in one day. Uh, we're determined to get it done and to see it happen. So, um, so that'll be Saturday, beginning at noon Eastern time and ending god only knows when uh but anyway so that's that's uh that's that's this coming that's this coming saturday um all right let's 
jump into the dispossessed then and get back to uh, looking at now I'm, i want to start off looking at chapter one and chapter two again um and remember i don't have to apologize for being behind in this class because i said at the beginning that i was planning as part of the plan right that's why i have like three weeks of scheduled reading and then no reading for week four because that's the week you know, I'd, so I've got four with three weeks of reading scheduled over four weeks of class. So it's totally, um, uh, it's totally a, a, a part of the plan. Just to clarify. Okay, so thinking about one and two, what I want to start off by looking at is a little bit about the how the chapters interlace. Okay, I talked about this some last time. It, to me, it's I mean, of the many brilliant things about this book. Uh, I think the very top of my list is the way the story unfolds, the overall structure of the story and how it unfolds. Um, it's, it was confusing at first. I was confused at first um, when I started, when I when I began reading it. And I'm sure many people have that same, that kind of disorientation at the beginning of chapter two, right? Kind of not knowing where we are and what's going on. Um, but but again, the relationship among the the chapters uh, is really really interesting, and the way that that uh, folds into the entire like themes and concepts of the book is just absolutely gorgeously done uh, by Le Guin. It's, it's just amazing. So I want to look at one uh, simple illustration of how these chapters work together in ways that I thought were really, really cool. Um, so let's um, jump in with a bit in, um, in chapter two, um, and that is uh, uh, looking at the, the, the prison story so you remember when uh, this like teenage shevik right uh with his friends tiran and badap and 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 and, and the others uh Kedagv, which i don't even really know if that's how it's supposed to be pronounced a lot of the nrst names are rather challenging uh, notice by the way the sort of symmetry there right that the uh the nrst names are very um very consonant heavy like you'll often get names like kadagv which just seems like it has too many consonants and not enough vowels and of course the erasti names are all like way too many vowels and no consonant like oye o i i e for instance uh, oye i think is how that's supposed to be pronounced but i honestly have the faintest idea how that's supposed to be pronounced um because it has too many vowels and not enough consonants uh so i love how uh how Iotic and Pravik are also in that way, kind of uh, not not quite mirror images of each other, but move in different directions. Um, anyway, um, so the prison moment. Remember why they did the whole prison thing, right? Why they did the whole prison experiment. Um, and remember also the spirit in which they entered into it, right? They were they were studying history and they were reading about prison. This is so. This is them studying Urasti culture from the outside, right? Well, let me rephrase that. This is them learning about Urasti culture from Anaresti schools. Um, no, wait. This is them learning, receiving the quite limited number of stories about Urasti culture, all of which date to a couple hundred years ago, which they're given at schools, right? Um, anyway, okay, so they hear about this and they they approach this in complete innocence, right? They don't, like, they can't comprehend the concept of prison, 
right? And and you know, like the, you know, I love their questions. Things like, well, if they don't want to be there, why don't they just leave, right? Um, the idea of compulsion, the idea of people forcing somebody to do something that they really don't want to do, is uh, is is so alien to them that they can't grasp it. So they decide to try it out in order just to kind of like understand what it was like. I mean, it's like, it's cool. They fight over who gets to be, and they don't actually fight, right? But they argue over who gets to be in the prison, right? Because it's like, it's, it's, it's cool. There's something, there's something, um, there's something novel, right? Uh, about it. And uh, Kadav is the guy who, who like sort of makes the most noise about it and is most willing to try. So they, so they, they put him in. Um, and remember, they leave him in for a long time. They leave him in overnight and the next day. And so in the afternoon of the next day, so this is, here. here's the account of, um, of their, the end of the experiment. Again, as always, love to hear your observations uh, from the passage. At, you go ahead and start typing those as I'm reading. Tiran and Shevik sat up whispering together for a long time on Tiran's bed. They decided that Kadag had asked for it and would get two full nights in prison. Their group met in the afternoon at the lumber recycling workshop, and the foreman asked where Kadag was. Shevik exchanged a glance with Tiran. He felt clever. He felt a sense of power in not replying. Yet when Tiran replied coolly that he must have joined another group for the day, Shevik was shocked by the lie. His sense of secret power suddenly made him uncomfortable. His legs itched. His ears felt hot. When, when the foreman spoke to him, he jumped with alarm or fear, or some such feeling, a feeling he had never felt before, something like embarrassment, but worse than that, inward and vile. He kept thinking about Kadag as he plugged and sanded nail holes in three-ply holem boards and sanded the boards back to silky smoothness. Every time he looked into his mind, there was Kadag in it. It was disgusting. So what do you notice? What do you notice? Yeah, Nancy says uh, she was one of the themes that she was thinking about in tonight's reading in chapters three and four was this theme of withholding information and gaining power by the withholding of information. Um, yeah, Nancy, I agree. We can see that beginning to emerge here. This is the first, the first overt instance of that, right? That that deliberate withholding of information and the associated sense of power with that, right? To uh, to keep something to yourself. A secret is empowering, even if it's like it's not like it actually gave them power over the foreman, right? Like it's not like they're asserting power um, over the foreman personally or anything like that, but they're conscious, right, of this sense of power. Um, good. More. What else do you? What else do you notice? Um, Jennifer Miner thinks it's interesting that he's doing manual labor and thinking about his power over Kadag. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is. It's interesting, I think, in a couple ways, Jennifer, right? You know, I mean, it's, um, first of all, there's something kind of appealingly metaphorical in the labor that he's doing, right? Not only he's, he's, driving, he's driving in nails, right? Um, but then he's, he's smoothing them over. So the board is just as smooth as it was before the nail got driven in, right? And I, I let, and every detail of the, I get she is so good. Every detail, 
McGuinn, I mean, every detail of the story. Even remember, you know, for those of you who were here last week, remember our, our uh, references to the one-eyed woman, right, in the nursery. Uh, everything, every every detail has a function. Everything is, is, is sort of all connected and together. So even that, right, that, that whole smoothing, you know, the sanding down of the board and smoothing it over so you can't even tell that there's a nail there. Uh, really intriguingly reflects what's what's happening right there, right? As they're as they're like smoothing over Kadog's uh, absence. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I'm absolutely the lie is a kind of anti-sharing, and 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 you're and you're. I mean, I by by your use of the word sharing, Noam, uh, I, I assume that you're referring back to the the uh, the the sharing, the speaking and listening circle, right? That Shevik gets booted out of earlier in chapter two, and we talked about that last time. Um, that uh no by the way i i i uh, have neglected to thank you for being with us here i am cheerfully you know going back and forth with you and not acknowledging the fact that it's what four in the morning over there um uh so thanks for thanks for i know it's a very special effort for you to be joining us here today so uh i'm glad you could make it and yana of course as well yana i know you're you're here with us as well um it's almost five there you are okay um yeah, uh, gnomes in Israel, so uh, not exactly. Uh, I know this is not a very friendly time uh, for that time zone. Um, anyway, okay, so um, uh, good. Yeah, as uh, Kristen Thompson points out, it's, it's not just the lie, but it's also it's also the secret. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, yeah, good, good. Um, What's he feeling and what is interesting about the fact that he's feeling it? A couple of you were talking a little bit about this. Um, guilt, right? Guilt was uh, mentioned. Uh, Neil uh, Oppenstein was mentioned. And Neil, do, do you pronounce the, the final syllable of your last name? Are you an, are you an Ein or an Ein? Uh, I, I've never been, I've always, uh, I've always been in doubt about that. Ein? Okay, thanks, Neil. Um, Neil was suggesting guilt as something that he's feeling. And I think shame, uh, uh, you know, shame is, is, is the word that I gave to it. I think it's, that seems to be what's being described. But notice how he, he, the problem is he doesn't have a word for it, right? What I gather from this is that there is not a word in Pravik for shame, which is really interesting, actually. Um, because he doesn't know how to describe this feeling that he's feeling, though from the description, it seems one that I'm fairly familiar with, right? Like embarrassment, but worse, inward and vile, right? Embarrassment is outward, right? You're, you feel embarrassed when, you're, when, when, when other people are looking at you, right? But this is an inward embarrassment. This is, you are feeling embarrassed when you look at yourself, right? And not just embarrassed, but vile. That's... Uh, yeah, yeah. Good. Joyce Sturgill has a great way of explaining this. She says, the nail hole has been filled and smoothed over, but the blemish is still there, right? The lie is smoothed over, but the shame uh, is still there, right? Absolutely. Um, and there's kind of two things going on here. He's shocked by the lie, right? And it's the lie that seems to kind of wake him up. Um, he and Tyrion are having a good time, right? They, they Remember how excited the boys were right after they lock Kadagva up and they go back to the to their dormitory and they're all like they're 
uh, what's the word? They're roistering, right? They're running around and they're making noise and, and, and uh, they're, they're in this sort of happy rule breaking mood, right? They've done something, they've, they've broken the mold. They've done something transgressive and they're kind of enjoying the fact that they've done something transgressive and they sit up whispering and, uh, and, and, and sort of conspiring about it. Right. And it gives them this sense of power. Right. But the lie seems to poke the balloon. Right. Um, when Tyrion lies about it, it's like Shevet can no longer conceal from himself the fact that this is a shameful thing. It seems to be, it's not that it makes it worse or really changes the thing, but it, it makes it different, right? It really seems to kind of bring it, bring it out there. Um, Kristen Thompson asks, in a society where crime is not a thing, uh, why would they have need for shame? Yeah, I mean, see, Kristen, I would think, I'm not sure I would have guessed this correctly. That is, if you'd asked me, you know, if I didn't have this passage and I'd read the entire book, and you'd ask me, is there a word for shame in Pravik? I would have said yes right away because of the emphasis on the, you know, the, the federative, right? The collective, um, the social responsibility. I would think that that sense of shame of like, I haven't lived up to my social, uh, my social responsibilities. I have, you know, I have, I have egoized that there would be shame. Right, that 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 sense of embarrassment, that sense of shame, even the use of shame as a verb in the way that it is used, right, to be shamed and to shame other people. I would think that shaming people would be something. I mean, we see people shaming people, right? I mean, that's that's what the that's what all the people who say stop egoizing are doing. They're shaming him, right? When the, when he says when he's sick in the hospital and he doesn't want to take get the shot, right? The doctor says stop egoizing. He's shaming him, right? Um, he shames him into sitting still and letting him give him a shot, right? Um, and yet they don't have a word for it. That, so that, as I said, to me, I find that surprising. Um, and really interesting, really interesting that they don't have that word. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Noam adds that he, find, he finds it interesting that the sense of secret power makes him uncomfortable rather than the power itself. Uh, as if it's it's important to have to do, um, it, it's important, what's that? As if it is something um, that has to do with the self-image uh, is more important than what the thing actually is, right? So it, it's about his changing of his perception of himself rather than the actual action, right? Um, and no, I agree with you. It's again, it's his reaction to Tyrion's lie. It doesn't change anything about what they're doing, but what it does is it changes his view of himself, right? It makes him, it makes it clear. He's, he's shocked by the lie that Tyrion has told, right? Um, that's not how you behave. That's not how you maintain the NRST social, social contract, right? That is clearly wrong. What they were doing with Kadag isn't wrong. Notice, Notice where this starts, that, that, that second sentence in that first short paragraph, right? How can they possibly justify keeping him in all night long, right? How can they possibly justify that? Because he asked for it, right? They're not exerting power over him. They're playing at exerting power over him, right? Um, but they're not actually subjecting him. They're not actually, um, you know, adopting a real proprietarian attitude. Uh, towards him, he asked for it. He's complicit. 
Um, so in a sense, he's not, you know, this experiment is in a sense a failure, right? Because Kadag himself signed up for it. The whole idea of being a prisoner is that you're being constrained against your will. That's the whole thing they couldn't understand in the first place. So the fact that people were fighting over, like, who gets the chance to be the prisoner shows that the thing was sort of as, a, as an experiment of failure from the very beginning. And even when they release Kadag, then it's been harder on him than he expected, right? He's still kind of proud of it, right? He asks, the, the one thing he asks is how long he was in there. And they tell him 36 hours, counting the first shorter time that he was in there, right? And he's just like, pretty long, right? He's, he's, they don't really talk about it. Um, and they all seem ashamed of it after the fact. But even afterwards, Kadagov is complicit, right? Um, he's, he's still going along with it. Anyway, so it's, so Noam, I agree that it's all about, this sort of position that they find themselves in, how they are looking at themselves, it's not the action in a sense that he's really ashamed of. What he's ashamed of is what that action has led him to to do, right? It's again, it's that it's that, as you say, Noam, it's that sense of power. Um, because his power isn't real. Um, it's the sense of power that gets to him, right? Um, good, as good, yeah, Noam follows that up by saying. They're not actually exerting power on Kadag, but they are on the foreman, right? By lying, um, they they uh, they actually do exert that kind of power over him. Um, James Stephen says the lie is is constraining Shevik now. Um, he looks in his mind and sees Kadag, so his mind is now the prison cell. Wonderful observation, James. Absolutely, yeah. Kadag is locked in his mind. Right. And again, it's not even Kadag anymore. I mean, it's 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 all about Kadag. It's all he can see. Right. Um, but the point is not that he's injuring Kadag more. Again, Kadag is, although suffering physically, um, still seems at the end rather pleased about it. And yet. It's his it's his mind that's being damaged. Right. What is happening is his mind is, has turned into the prison. It's a wonderful way uh, of of thinking about it. Um, yeah. Good. Um, so, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Karita was just observing that you can do when uh, something's going, somebody says something, you can you can give it a little thumbs up on your on your uh, little attendee spot there. Yeah, you can do that. Um, I will have to tell you, I can't see it because I have I have that panel kind of covered up um, with my little notes, mostly because I'm trying to hide my webcam image from myself. So that I'm not just I am I'm like a cat or a like very small child. If there is a television, like if there's a video screen moving, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, if it's moving in my it's it's like a Y chromosome thing in part really, but but I'm particularly bad about it. Um, it doesn't matter how hard I try to avoid it. I'm just like I'll, so rather than like to avoid staring at myself while I talk the whole time, I have that covered up, and so it so I can't see it when you give the little thumbs up. But it is a way that you guys can kind of also uh, communicate with each other a little bit too. Um, but uh, but yeah, if, so if you want me to see it, you do need to you do need to type something in the box because I can I can see that. Um, yeah, good, good. Okay. Um, so let's go back to chapter one. Remember that weird moment in chapter one? Okay, several weird moments in chapter one. Remember this weird moment in chapter one? Uh, Shevik wakes up 
right from the first time he uh you know the first time he wakes up in the in the ship right uh and he tries to open the door he could not the door was locked shevik's first incredulity turned to rage a kind of rage a blind will to violence which he had never felt before in his life he wrenched at the immovable door handle, slammed his hands against the slick metal of the door, then turned and jabbed the call button, which the doctor had told him to use at need. Nothing happened. There were a lot of other little numbered buttons of different colors on the intercom panel. He hit his hand across the whole lot of them. The wall speaker began to babble. Who the hell? Yes, coming right away. Coming right, right away. Out. Clear. What? From 22. Shevik drowned them all out. Unlock the door! The door slid open. The doctor looked in. At the sight of his bald, anxious, yellowish face, Shevik's wrath cooled and retreated into an inward darkness. He said, the door was locked. I'm sorry, Dr. Shevik. A precaution. Contagion. Keeping the others out. To lock out. To lock in. The same act, Shevik said, looking down at the doctor with light, remote eyes. Now, uh, if you had anything like a the same reaction that I did when reading this book for the first time, you will have found this a little bit odd, right? I mean, we haven't seen any, I mean, so far, Shevik seems to, I mean, so far, we're on page 11, right? But so far, Shevik seems fairly balanced, right? We don't have any context for this. His reaction to finding the door locked seems a little extreme, right, to us. Um, again, remember, chapter 1, page 11, forget anything else you know, right? Chapter 1, page 11, this seems weird, right? Like, why does he absolutely flip out when he finds the door of his room locked, right? It's not like he's stifling. It's not like the walls are closing in, right? His, his door is locked. Call, you pushing the call button to say, like, hey, dude, why is my door locked? Is perfect. But he freaks out when the door is locked. Why does he freak out? Um, Kristen Thompson says her first reaction uh, was that Shevik was acting like a house cat? Certainly, what with the paws on the on the keys. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yana says it kind of threw him off. It made him worry about his sanity. Yeah, he seems this is kind of imbalanced. Right? Seems kind of at least it seems to us from our page eleven standpoint like a rather imbalanced reaction, right? Um, so. But now you see how this works, right? Now we read chapter two, and after reading chapter two, you go back and chapter one sounds so much different in retrospect. Now, from the vantage point of chapter two, why does he freak out like this? What's the, what's the, what's the problem? Yeah, Michael, it's, it's, he's in prison, right? Um, it's not, and it is true, we learned that almost nobody ever locks doors in an arse, right? So that would explain why he was surprised to find the door locked. And it might explain him being puzzled, even possibly a little bit alarmed, right? Um, but I would expect if it, if, if it were nothing, I mean, what's his reaction to other things? We don't see him freak out. We see him encounter lots of things in the ship that are very foreign to him, that are very counter to NRST society. And he doesn't freak out at them, right? I mean, you know, we talked about like the erotic furniture and all that stuff last time, right? There's a bunch of things that are totally counter to his culture and which 
confuse or puzzle him, right? He doesn't flip out. So why does he flip out? Well, okay, it's it's a prison, right? But it's not just that he feels like he's a prisoner. He's not just paranoid, right? Um, we learn in chapter two that he has particular strong associations with prisons, right? We have this, there's this prison incident, which was clearly a formative moment. Why do I say that? Why do I say it's clearly a formative moment? Because it's in chapter two, right? I mean, we only get a couple incidents from his childhood, right? Um, a couple glimpses into what his childhood was like. Presumably those weren't chosen at random, right? We have these three uh, important formative moments, the, the baby Shevik in the patch of sunlight, right? The Shevik getting kicked out of the speaking and listening group because they weren't operating on his level. And the um, coupled with his relationship with his father, right, which sort of straddled both of those first two, right? And then the third, this incident from his later childhood, from his teenage years um, with the other boys at his school. Um, yeah, good. Noam says he's not confused about this. He's sure he understands the situation, right? Yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, good, good. Um, so, more, more. What do you notice about this? How does this scene affect us in retrospect again after chapter two? Go back to what we were just talking about, right? He's acting almost as if he had had a traumatic experience in which he had been imprisoned, right? I mean, uh, the, uh, you know, Yana was speaking of it. Somebody else was also mentioning claustrophobia, right? It sounds like the reaction of a claustrophobe, right? Who's just panicking because they find themselves shut in. Um, if we happened to know that he had had an experience in his childhood where he was locked in a the prison like Kadag, right? then that would seem to explain it perfectly. We would need no further explanation at all. We'd be like, oh yeah, poor guy, he's got a he's got an enclosed space thing. Right? He has this trauma in his past about being locked in a prison. So when he thinks he's locked in a prison again, he flips out. Totally natural, right? Except it's not that simple. He's not he wasn't the one locked in. He did have a traumatic experience with prisons though, right? So what was the nature of the trauma that he experienced with the prison and how does it relate to this situation. Kristen says he's being kept apart, not included, which he's, uh, which he's been shown by NRSD culture is shameful. Okay, we have seen that too, that idea of separation, right? Um, the doctor explains, oh yeah, no, 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 you weren't being imprisoned, right? What was he being done? What was happening to him? It, it wasn't, it wasn't prison. What was it? What was it? It was in prison. It was quarantine, right? It was quarantine. It's just, you know, a precaution about contagion, right? But Kristen, as you were saying, he's being forcibly separated. He's being locked away, right? He's different. Um, yeah, K, exactly, exactly. Quarantine. Remember the quarantine imagery from that passage about the wall in the first 
two chapters of the book, right? The wall that surrounded the port of Anaris was like a quarantine, right? Quarantining Anaris off from the rest of the universe and the rest of the universe off from Anaris. And here we have that same pattern repeating itself within the ship and him freaking out about it, right? Um, yeah, James Stevens is recalling how the children only sleep alone if they bother other children, right? It's, a, it's, it's like a punishment. Even more, James, it's like a judgment, right? Um, it's, it's like a condemnation. You don't play well with others, right? You are not like when he gets kicked out of the group. You are not operating on this level. You don't belong here. Um, you are not a part of the collective, so you have to go, right? You have to be alone. Um, you have to be quarantined. Um, yeah, <laughs> Kay says that uh, his uh, his reaction to the wall speaker is uh, kind of like hers when her kid wakes her up in the middle of the night. Um, yeah, I think we've all been there. It's also like me and my iPhone in the mornings. Stop with the noise. Anyway, yeah, different but similar. Um, good, good. Now. Back to the shame, though. Again, remember the thing that I that, that that I find so fascinating about this. Again, it would be it would be the parallel would be really neat, especially the way you know the way that this scene sits between the two scenes, right? The, the, I, I mean, the first wall image, right, and how this repeats that imagery, but then also connects forward to the prison scene, right? It would be perfect if he had been the one imprisoned, right? It would be it would be, it would be simple. It'd be neat, right? So you have him locked away in this prison as this experiment, right, when he was a kid and you have him locked away in quarantine on the ship, right, which just took off from the port of Anaris, which is bounded in quarantine, right? I mean, it would be, it would be perfect, it would be lovely, but that's not what happened, right? That's not, in fact, how it works. How it worked is he was the one who did the shutting in and that's what was traumatic, right? The trauma was the shame that he experienced. That's why, remember, Tyrion is fine going on with the experiment, but he takes one look at Shevik's face and can see Shevik is done, right? And there's no, Tyrion knows there's nothing he can say that's going to talk Shevik out of it. So Shevik is drawing the line, right? The prison experiment is done. He has... So... Well, and yeah, Joyce, you're right. Uh, um, uh, Le Guin is never that neat and simple. Absolutely. Um, Good. Now, James, excellent, excellent. James Stevens, you're on a roll tonight, James. Uh, James points to the line, which I agree with him, is really the pivotal line, the, the line that helps to illuminate this whole relationship, that last line, to lock out, to lock in the same act, Shevik said. Right. No, he didn't have the experience of being locked in a prison before. The problem is not merely one of a claustrophobia that stems from that traumatic experience of being shut in. The fact, oh good, Noam was just typing exactly the same thing. Um, uh, yeah, for uh, for Shevik, it's, this, it's the same thing, right? His experience being the prisoner, right, um, was the scarring experience. Um, and he says, to, to lock in, to lock out, is the same act. Um, so you think about it. So what does that? So that it's not as simple as to exert that kind of power over someone else is wrong and horrible and shameful, right? That is the prisoner, the 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 guard locking the, up the prisoner, 
right? I almost said the prisoner and the prisonee, but that's not what I meant at all. Anyway, or rather English doesn't work that way. Um, so yeah, yeah, so that's, 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 but it's not just that, right? What is wrong, the, the traumatic experience was that experience of separation, right? It was being the locker in because in locking Kadag uh, 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 in, he was locking everybody else out, right? It was creating that rift, that separation in the community. That was the wrong thing. And that was the wrong thing that led to his shame. And that was the scarring experience. Being cut off, cutting yourself off, cutting someone else off. Um, there's a continuity there in Shevik's mind. And on every side of that, no matter which side of the door you're on, you have the same shame, right? He is not okay with this. So why does he freak out? Why is his reaction to this so inappropriate? I mean, that is compared to the apparent provocation. I think this seems to kind of hit a button for him. It's not just about chapter two. It's not just about the scarring childhood experience. It also connects to what, remember, he just crossed me back to that paragraph one image, right? He's just crossed the line. He's just crossed the quarantine. And he's now left Anaris behind, the first one to do so, right? He's shut the door on himself by crossing that wall. He's crossed the wall and he's now shut away like a prisoner from Anaris, right? Has he, has Anaris locked him in, right? To the port of Anaris and the rest of the universe or has he locked the rest of Anaris out, right? To lock in, to lock out, to lock in, same act, right? So yeah, this clearly seems to hit a nerve with Shevik, right? Now, Brief side note, um, I love moments like this. I would have felt totally justified. Um, uh, I would have felt totally justified talking about these passages this way without it. Um, uh, with, but I love the fact that we, we we're given a kind of a justification. What I mean is, uh, perhaps maybe there are some who are listening to this who are thinking I'm being over clever, right? I remember feeling that way a lot. Um, I remember. Uh, I have d very distinct memories of uh, uh, reading. The most distinct one was reading uh, uh, um, Lord of the Flies in 10th grade English, um, which was before I had, it was 11th grade English that changed my life and, you know, turned me into a close reader uh, and the rest was history. But 10th grade English, I was still very resistant because I, I had the sense that it was all BS, that like the things that English teachers saying where they were just making up. Um, and in my defense, I think I was right about a fair bit of it. Um, that is like, it kind of seemed to me, and it, I was probably less justified than I felt, um, but I still in retrospect, don't think I was wholly unjustified in thinking that a lot of the things that were talked about in class was like free association. This passage makes me think about this and people are like, oh, that's very interesting. And I'm like, no, I'm not very interested in that actually. Um, and what I couldn't see is like, how can I know, you know, how can I, what, what, what justifies this reading? You know, what justifies, uh, you know, having this sort of particular reaction to this particular passage of text? Um, so I like to take time to sort of justify it when, especially when there's a simple justification to make. So just in case the whole prison thing, um, 
you know, how can we know that we're like meant to make this connection? Um, this is the one of those things that I didn't think twice. I, 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 I noticed him freaking out and felt that that was weird the first time, even though I didn't understand why. This passage went completely over my head till I read the book for the second time, which I'm just doing uh, along with you guys as we as I prepare for class each week. Um, this is the very first time he goes into the room. It was a very small room with seamed blank walls. It repelled Shevek, reminding him of a place he did not want to remember. He stopped in the doorway, but the doctor urged and pleaded, and he went on in. Right? It remind reminding him of a place he did not want to remember. What's he talking about? Well, of course. Now, after chapter two, we know what he's talking about. That I take that as an overt reference to the prison incident with Kadag. Um, so um, anyway, that's um, um, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's that's a really fun reference in retrospect that I think kind of primes us, especially when we're reading it through the second time, kind of sets us up to wait, wait, wait hang on a second. What is he associating the room with? And then we see him freaking out and then we get to chapter two. And again, for the second time, we're like, oh, okay, right. That all, that all makes perfect sense. Um, so that's what I would have said to my 10th grade self if my 10th grade self had obnoxiously challenged what I said and said I was full of garbage, which I didn't, I wouldn't have said that my teacher was full of garbage, but I think I was my vague impression, um, which I feel confirmed by many particular recollections, is that I was wholly insufferable when I was in high school. Absolutely insufferable. Um, I, so anyway, but I, that's 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 I think what I would have, what I would say to my tenth grade self. Um, okay. So we get. Let's back up and look at the bigger picture a little bit, right? The the Urus versus Anaris. Bigger, bigger picture, right? Um, uh, the back to the prison thing, right? And what we're seeing in the, in the conversation of the of you know the teenage boys and everything that 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 we're getting, we're left with this really strong language, right? Thinking about Urus and Anaris. Now, of course, this is thinking entirely from an Anaristi point of view, right? Um, there in chapter two. Remember this conversation about Urus. This is one of those moments I think there's a lot of evidence to really, um, again, it's one of those things which if it didn't jump out at you the first time, you have no excuse for not like seeing the big flashing lights go off around this passage, uh, these two next two passages uh, when you read it the second time. Um, so this is him arguing with Tyrion. By the way, let me be a little bit more explicit. I said you there's lots of evidence. The evidence that I mean is the number of other times it's referred to. Any other time, there have been at least two references back to this passage in later chapters, right? Um, when the narrator tells us that Shevik is recalling this conversation that he had uh, with, and that's like about as, as strong a tell as Ursula Le Guin is going to give you, right? Don't forget this. Remember this passage and bring it forward, right? Um, uh, we uh, we can't ask for much more than that, right? Um, so uh, yes, Nancy later Shevik thinks that Tyrion was right. Yes, that's exactly the moment. Okay. All right, I agree. This is Tyrion speaking. All right, I agree that it's probably wise to fear Urus, but why hate? Hate's not functional. Why are we taught it? 
Could it be that if we knew what Urus was really like, we'd like it? Some of us? Some of it? Some of us? What the PDC wants to prevent is not just some of them coming here, but some of us wanting to go there? Go to Urus? Shevik said, startled. They argued because they liked argument, liked the swift run of the unfettered mind along the paths of possibility, liked to question what was not questioned. They were intelligent. Their minds were already disciplined to the clarity of science, and they were 16 years old. But at this point, the pleasure of the argument ceased for Shevik, as it had earlier for Kvetur. He was disturbed. Who'd ever want to go to Urus? he demanded. What for? Okay, so important thing now I want to, and here I want to emphasize, we'll come back to Shevik's perspective next time because we're going to, next slide, I'm going to give Shevik's response, right? So we'll talk a little bit more about Shevik's point of view. I want to emphasize Tiran's point of view. What's Tiran's concept here? What is Tiran saying, and what are the implications of what Tiran is saying? Yeah, exactly, Neil. You might, uh, I mean, um, why hate? Because like, if you hate, it might lead you to like throw rocks at people, right? I mean, that could be a thing that could happen. Um, yes, good, good. Um, Tiran is questioning the standard anaresti line about Urus, right? All those videos that they see about Urus, all the things that they read about in the textbooks, about what Ur, what about Urasti society is like, right? And he questions it. Is it. How old are these things, right? Is this even accurate? Is it Even if it used to be accurate, is it still accurate now? Tiran raises the question, is the PDC engaging in propaganda, right? Are they trying to manipulate us into feeling a particular way about Urus? Which is a shocking question to ask. Now, in that second paragraph, we're told, well, that's fine, right? Like, shocking questions are totally normal. Shocking questions are, are what they do, right? They're intelligent. They love debate. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's fun, right? But this is, it ceases to be fun for Shevik, right? Um, the implications, though? are pretty huge, really huge. It's not just about Urus, right? I mean, the mere conclusion, maybe Urus isn't as bad as we think. That would be a shocking change of mind, right? Um, but that's not the shocking thing, right? The shocking thing is maybe the PDC is manipulating us. Maybe they're lying to us. Remember the effect of that one little lie to the foreman, right? That exertion of power. As James Stevens says, the P the, if it were true, the PDC would be holding back information to get power over the people. To manipulate someone with an untruth or a half-truth or through the, withholding, the deliberate withholding of information, that's the exertion of power, right? That's the presumption of power. We know what's good for you. We know what's good for the society. We're not going to, we're going to hamper your own initiative, right? We're going to try to control you. 
and control the way you think. That's that's a that's a that's a prison guard mentality, and none of them like to think that that could even be possible from the PDC. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's look at Shevik's response. And yet, Nancy, you're right. I mean, you're very right to emphasize. Nancy says it's just you know the the it that whole concept has disturbing implications um, because the PDC is not supposed to have that kind of power. It's not just that it's wrong. It's not just that it would be wrong if somebody were doing this. It's that that's not even supposed to be on the table, right? Like the idea that. Um, I'm trying to, Nancy. I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of an analogy here. Uh, it's one thing to say the police are armed, but they're not supposed to use their weapons against the innocent, right? And if you find the police using weapons against the innocent, you're outraged, right? That's one thing, but. Nancy, as you're pointing to the deeper level of betrayal there is to say, wait a second, they're not even supposed to have guns, right? If the whole system is based upon the fact that there, that there are no guns, right? There are no weapons. Um, the, the mere fact, the mere concept that weapons exist and are being held by some is in its way even more shocking than the fact that they're using them. Right? You see what I mean? I don't know if that analogy helps at all. Um, but I'm trying to point to like how deeply fundamental this sense of like the importance of the 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 anarchical system that they have here. Right? The idea that the PDC is operating like a government is in its way more shocking than the possibility that the government is abusing power, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah, Neil, you're right. If they're doing it, they're doing it because they don't want corruption from Urus to inf to infect the society. In fact, Neil, as you're probably recalling, th those are exactly the terms of the argument that comes right before this. Tyrion has just rejected that analogy, right? But one of the other boys makes that analogy um, about uh, about infection in an organism, and he Tyrion dismisses it, right? You can you can you can you can prove anything by analogy, right? Um, but it's exactly the quarantine analogy that they're using, right? So it's fine. It's for the it's for the greater good, right? Um, we're quarantining you. It's for the best, right? Which of course is just what the doctor says when he opens the door that he had locked on Shevik, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good. Kareta says it would be deeply freaky to realize, for anyone to realize, that they might be living in a giant prison, uh, much more so for the people in this culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, let's look at Shevik's uh, response. So here's Tiran's final, uh, final gesture here. If we are better than any other human, human society, said Tiran, then we ought to be helping them, but we're forbidden to. Forbidden? Non-organic word. Who forbids? 
You're externalizing the integrative function itself, Shevik said, leaning forward and speaking with intensity. Order is not orders. We don't leave Anaris because we are Anaris. Being Tyran, you can't leave Tyran's skin. You might try you might like to try being somebody else to see what it's like, but you can't. But you are kept from it. But are you kept from it by force? Are we kept here by force? What force? What laws? Governments? Police? None. Simply our own being, our nature as Odonians. It's your nature to be Tyran, and my nature to be Shevek, and our common nature to be Odonians, responsible to one another. And that responsibility is our freedom. To avoid it would be to lose our freedom. But would you really like to live in a society where you had no responsibility and no freedom, no choice, only the false option of obedience to the law or disobedience followed by punishment? Would you really want to go live in a prison? Who would want to go live in a prison? Now, of course, by that he means Horus, right? So he shifts there at the end to make his anti-Urus argument, right? Um, from the, would you really like to live in, you know, those last, what, three interrogatives there? He's talking about Urus, right? This is his, like, squashing the idea that anybody from Anaris would want to go to Urus, right? Um, Karita, what a fascinating observation. Uh, Karita says it's interesting to look at the use of the plural and the singular in this passage. Um, yes, it is, especially, Karita, since our language, uh, our modern language, has only the one second person pronoun, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Karita says we ought to be helping versus would you like to go live? And Karita, I would add the question of is the you ever plural, right? Yeah, Yana, I am speaking for myself. I, I know, I know. Uh, but in modern English, we only have we only have the one, at least in many parts of the country. Um, this, by the way, is why I am I am fully in support of dialectical. I was uh, um, I remember when I was a, a kid when I was in elementary school. I lived in uh, in this tiny little town in the absolute middle of nowhere uh, in southern rural West Virginia. And I remember our teacher at school trying uh, desperately to uh, train her young pupils not to say ain't or y'all. Um, and uh, we like, got a reward if we could like refrain from saying y'all or ain't uh, uh, during class. And um, we almost never received that reward. Um, but um, uh, but I, as an adult, I fully approve of y'all. Y'all is very useful. Um, uh, it's yeah, Karita. I, I not only do I refuse to let it go, I've added it because I'm from New England, and although, although we have several useful, uh, at least I consider myself from New England. I've lived here. Uh, I moved here when I was ten, uh, and now I'm back again. Um, I uh, uh, we don't have any fun regional plural second person pronoun like they do in other parts of the country, like like uh, like y'all or yous or yins. Um, uh, so like I'm not from the South, I'm not from Pittsburgh. But um, anyway, it's it's uh, it's fantastically useful. Um, anyhow, so so yeah, Karita, I agree with you. The singular and, pro and plural, and I think that's important, right? His sort of slipping back and forth between them, I think, is important because that's the issue here, right? 
um, it's the issue about the relationship between the singular and the plural, between the individual and the society, right? Um, that's entirely what he's arguing. He is insisting, just insisting that there is no compulsion, right? We don't, like nobody, you can't say we're forbidden to. Who forbids? You're externalizing the integrative function itself, right? The integrative function, our own desire as Odonians to integrate and to work together, right? There is nobody to forbid. There's no government. There's no police, right? We don't receive orders. We do have order. We agree upon and establish order. We have responsibility to each other, and that responsibility is our freedom, right? But it is, it is, it is false just to say that somebody forbids us. And he's shouting, tearing down and doing this. Right? He is insisting, no, I mean, remember what Tyrion was challenging was exactly this thing. He doesn't contradict Tyrion's actual argument, or rather he doesn't contradict the implications of Tyrion's argument, right? If Tyrion's statement is true, um, and there's some evidence for his statement about the PDC and the sort of conspiracy on the part of the PDC, um, then he's right. I mean, exactly the most disturbing um, element of Tyrion's comment is that there is somebody who forbids. There's not supposed to be, but there really is. And if that's true, then all of Shevik's impassioned response falls to the ground, right? Because it's based on a kind of blind faith in the Odonian system, right? No, we all act this way. We all believe, we, Karita, Right, we, the plural of us, right, are all in this together. And by golly, that's how it works. And his opposition to the implication that there is some external force operating upon us to prevent us, his argument against that is a mere operation of force and he just shouts Tyrion down, right? And Tyrion even objects, right? He says like, you just lump arguments on like bricks, right? not caring, you know, just you just dump a load of bricks on somebody, not caring who gets hurt. Um, he himself is not entering into an integrative uh, relationship of mutual responsibility with Tyrion here. He's he's beating him down verbally, beating him down, right? Um, <laughs> interesting. Uh, Jordan Sunderland says, Shevik almost sounds like an addict. He can quit an RS anytime he wants, but why would he want to? Right? <laughs> that's, that's really interesting, Jordan. Um, now, of course, all of this is already rendered ironic, right? Once again, the relationship between chapter one and chapter two. This time it goes the other way around. When we get to this in chapter two, the irony of this passage is already enormously strong, right? We can feel, I mean, it's like the kind of dramatic irony that makes you squirm, it's so strong, right? When Shevik is shouting at Tyrion, why would anyone want to leave? Why would anyone want to go to Urus, right? And we know, because we know the future from chapter one, he himself is going to choose to go to Urus, right? And, and that contextualizes 
the entire thing, right? Um, okay, so no, little sort of mini conclusion here. Um, it's possible to read this book as a kind of praise for this, you know, communist system that that is Odonianism, right? Um, you know, this, uh, you know, as, you know, this is a, a sort of an idealization of this communal arrangement. I mean, it certainly seems ideal. There's a kind of moral innocence here, which seems really appealing. I mean, there are lots of elements. Um, there are lots of elements in this, uh, in this society, which seem just like utopian, right? Um, but we have to be careful. Right, or rather, the structure of the text itself urges caution, almost compels us uh, to be cautious. Right, um, we see how Shevik's views have changed. Presumably, they have changed from this time when he says we don't leave an Anaris because we are Anaris. Right. Well, he is going to leave Anaris. Why is he going to leave Anaris? It opens up that question, right, which we don't still know the answer to. Um, but there's there's a there's a there's a gap here, right? We we already see this glimpse. This at least at least we're invited to ask the question: How wide is the gap between the ideals of Anaris and the reality of Anaris? Right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Noam says it's possible to read this book both as praising communism and as condemning it. Uh, he says he's done both. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, I think that anybody who gets from this book merely a praise of communism is is missing half the story. I think we'll come to that a little bit later on. Let's go to Urus. Let's see. So, what is when we get to Urus? What does he notice? Right. So, following up and and here we transition, you know, right from this pretty pretty pretty, pretty close to right from this conversation. Uh, to his time in Urus, right? So we get an immediate answer to this question. They don't want us to know what Urus is really like. Well, what is Urus really like? Well, let's see. Looking out the window of his room, what does he see? The windows looked right over a grove of trees, a white building with a graceful square tower. Beyond this building, the land fell away to a broad valley. All of it was farmed. All For the innumerable patches of green that colored it were rectangular. Even when the green faded into the blue distance, the dark lines of lanes, hedgerows, or trees could still be made out, a network as fine as the nervous system of a living body. At last, hills rose up bordering the valley, blue fold behind blue fold, soft and dark under the even pale gray of the sky. It was the most beautiful view Shevik had ever seen. The tenderness and vitality of the colors, the mixture of rectilinear human design and powerful, proliferate natural contours, the variety and harmony of the elements gave an impression of complex wholeness such as he had never seen, except perhaps foreshadowed on a small scale in certain serene and thoughtful human faces. Compared to this, every scene Anaris could offer, even the plain of Abenai and the gorges of Netharas, was meager, barren arid and inchoate. The deserts of Southwest had a vast beauty, but it was hostile and timeless. Even where men farmed Anaris most closely, their landscape was like a crude sketch in yellow chalk, 
compared with this fulfilled magnificence of life, rich in the sense of history and of seasons to come, inexhaustible. This is what a world is supposed to look like, Shevik thought. So what do you notice? <clears throat> what do you notice? Nancy says it's not just that Urus is a naturally more hospitable world, it's also the human-built stuff that he admires. The tower, which you'd never see on Anaris. Yes, good, exactly. There's no, there are no multi-story buildings in Anaris, um, which is partly functional, right? Because it's unstable, there are earthquakes a lot, and also because there aren't so many people that they need skyscrapers, right? Um, nowhere are human beings so densely populated that they need skyscrapers, right? Um, but Nancy, you make a wonderful point, right? We, it would not be particularly wonderful, right, to find Shevik admiring the lushness of the landscape itself. I mean, that coming from an arid planet um, and, you know, seeing the, 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 the incredible richness of the organic life there on Urus, would of course that's going to be very striking and of course he's going to find that beautiful and, and amazing um but as nancy points out it's not just that um it's the human built stuff that he also admires and not just the human built stuff it's the integration of the two right um it's the way that they come together what's the what's the phrase that she uses here the tenderness and vitality of the colors the mixture of rectilinear human design and powerful, proliferate natural contours, the variety and harmony of the elements, right? It's all of them together. Th that is Urus, right? The richness and lushness of the land, the activity of the people, right? The, vi the variety and harmony of these two things, right? The human element, the natural element. Um, and how they come together, right? And Karita, I agree with you. I also find very striking the uh, the image, um, the metaphor that that she ends with, right? Foreshadowing this, you know, the, the the only thing that he's seen like it is the, an expression he's seen in some what is it, serene and thoughtful human faces, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Noam says, at least in some way, Urus is how things should be. Good, Noam. That's a really important thing, right? And his reaction is, this is what a world is supposed to look like. In other words, one thing we immediately see, one quick, quick simple thing we immediately see is Tyrion was right, right? Tyrion's observation is confirmed. He gets to Urus, and what's his reaction to Urus? This is awesome, right? This is so much better than Anaris. Um, even the parts of Anaris that looked so beautiful and so lush from an Anarasti perspective now look hostile, right? Um, barren, arid, and inchoate. Um, so... Is it possible for an NRST to go to, to Urus and like it better and find it sort of more satisfying and fulfilling? Then, yep, apparently so, right? Um, 
Yeah, James says you definitely wouldn't want this image to be seen on Anaris if you didn't want people to go there. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but of course, it's not all beauty, right? We still have, you know, we were looking at the kind of, uh, you know, the culture clash that was happening in his conversations with the doctor on board the ship, right, with uh, Kimoe. Um, we, of course, see even bigger clashes happening. Um, here's a passage from the conversation he has with uh, the other physicists when they're talking about women, and he's asking about women in the labs. Um, Shevik saw that he had touched in these men an impersonal animosity that went very deep. Apparently they, like the tables on the ship, contained a woman, a suppressed, silenced, bestialized woman, a fury in a cage. He had no right to tease them. They knew no relation but possession. They were possessed. Short paragraph. With an enormous amount going on, right? Um, uh, what's he saying here? What is Shevik's observation about their reaction? So it's not just, he's not just drawing a conclusion about the way that they treat women, right? Um, how they look down on the intellectual capacity of women. Um, their very strict sort of separation, right? between what kind of work is men's work and what kind of work is women's work. It's not that. It is that they react. I remember Kimoe reacted fairly violently on the same subject, right? The animosity, right? The passion with which they get all defensive about women. Um, That's what he's commenting on here. They have this impersonal animosity that went very deep. So it's an animosity, but it's not a personal animosity, right? So notice Shevik's response is not, boy, these guys have had some issues with women, right? That's not his response. He doesn't assume that, you know, they've, uh, that, you know, some woman must have done something terrible to them to make them hate women so much, right? That's not Shevik's conclusion. His conclusion is that their animosity is impersonal. And it's like those, it's like that erotic furniture, right? The tables on the ship contained a woman, right? The chairs, the tables, the mattress. There was something erotic in it, he felt, Shevik felt, right? Um, and so notice he's saying that they are like the tables. He's not saying that they their attitude towards women is apparently the same as the attitude of the of the Orasti cabinet makers, right? Whom he suspected of being celibate, remember? That's not the parallel he's drawing. He's not drawing a parallel between his the guys he's talking to and the cabinet makers. He's drawing a parallel between the guys he's talking to and the tables themselves. Right? Okay. They contain a woman, a suppressed, silenced, bestialized woman. Right? Um, what is uh, a fury in a cage? That's why there's. That's why the animosity. Right? That's what's coming out of them. 
this woman that they're repressing they are repressing the woman in themselves is how he reads this right they knew he had no right to tease them right he doesn't think ill of them for this he doesn't blame them for this he doesn't give them a hard time for this um and notice his impulse is to tease them is to give them a hard time not to not to get outraged right but he doesn't have any right to do it why it's, it's not their fault right they knew no relation but possession so explain that part of it if we accept shevik's observation that there's a there's a suppressed silenced bestialized woman pent up in them themselves just as the tables made by the presumably celibate cabinet makers again from shevik's perspective have also a woman in them right sort of contained in them pent up in them right um so they themselves have a woman inside they knew no relation but possession connect those dots for me how did he get from one end of this paragraph to the other end of this paragraph right um four steps they feel an impersonal animosity that went very deep step two there's a woman pent up inside them that's what the animosity comes from a fury in a cage step three they know no relation but possession step four they are possessed Noam asks a great question. Fury is in the emotion or the Greek mythological character both, I would think. I mean, it's not like capital F fury. It's not making an actual allusion to a particular fury or something, but it is using um, fury is not abstract, I think. A fury in a cage is a concrete image, right? Um, so I think that does evoke the idea of the Greek myths. That is like it's a fury, a, a person who is a fury. Right? This woman, the suppressed, silenced, bestialized woman, is a fury in the cage, right? And so, especially since the Furies, uh, the Greek Furies were female, I do think that that's, um, uh, that's the kind of thing that, she, that she's talking about there, absolutely. Um, okay. Can you follow the track of Shevik's thought here? it's worth doing right clearly um because yana as you were pointing out we're certainly the the warning light should go off when we get to something which is so close to the title of the book right uh, we're talking about possession here in a book called the dispossessed so this, this seems probably important right um uh Good. Yeah, Nancy, I think you're almost there too. Okay, here's what here's what Nancy Fosberg says. If they can only relate to women through possession, right? If they if they view women solely as objects to be possessed and controlled themselves, right, by men, then they can't acknowledge women as people, as equals. Which means, so I don't want to say the feminine in themselves, but the part of themselves with which they could greet women as brothers is suppressed. And while it is suppressed, 
they can't be free. Yeah, I think you're almost there too, Nancy. That's really good. I think that's I think that's that's really really close. I don't think it it doesn't it doesn't get absolutely everything, but that's but that's really close. Um, I think that's a really good way to think about this whole suppressed woman within, right? Um, part of the um, remember Shevik's laughter in response to the uh, to the words of the doctor who said, um, "You treat men and women the same." on uh, Anaris, right? And he's like, no, no, we don't actually treat men and women the same, right? That would be a waste of good equipment. Um, it's not that differences aren't acknowledged, right? Um, but it, it is, Nancy, very, it's all about if you don't focus on possession, right? If nobody possesses themselves or each other, right? Then you can meet each other, right? you can engage in a, a relationship with a woman, um, that which can relate to her can come out in you, right? And that, that like you can achieve this sort of this sort of unity, this kind of brotherhood, um, this kind of siblinghood to try to use a gender neutral word, right? Um, which you just which is not available to you if you define them as subhuman or at least submasculine, right? Um, the result of thinking of things only in terms of possession is that you yourself are possessed. It's the only, you cannot have brotherhood, right? You can't, that's, it's not available to you if you see things this way. So possession is the opposite of brotherhood, right? Um, of togetherness of the kind of integration that they have in Anaris, um, that kind of possession, that kind of power, that even just the idea of it, even the assertion of it, the concept of it. Um, and it's fascinating to me that again, he's, he doesn't, Shevik doesn't just focus on, wow, it's appalling how you treat women, right? His reaction is, so sad what you do to yourselves, right? Um, yeah, yeah, fascinating. Okay. Um, note, um, note the assumptions that are being made on both sides. Um, I, I, I found these passages really, really cool, right? And we, again, we looked at some of this before, but we can see some kind of more profound examples of the, you know, when things are being looked at from one side of the wall or the other, right? And they look really, really different, right? So here's uh, assumptions about Anaris uh, that we see popping up naturally. Like they, they, they can't, the Urasti just can't, they just don't get it, right? They can't get it at all. We know that nominally there's no government on Anaris. However, obviously there's an administration and we gather that the, we gather that the group that sent you, your syndicate, is a kind of faction, perhaps a revolutionary faction. Everybody on Anaris is a revolutionary, Oye. The network and the network of administration and management is called PDC, Production and Distribution Coordination. They're a coordinating system for all syndicates, federatives, and individuals who do productive work. They do not govern persons, they administer production. They have no authority either to support me or to prevent me. They can only tell us the public opinion of us where we stand in the social conscience. That's what you want to know? 
well, my friends and I are mostly disapproved of. Most people on Anaris don't want to learn about Urus. They fear it and want nothing to do with the Propertarians. I'm sorry if I'm rude. I love the fact that he like lets out the P word, which is like the deadliest insult on Anaris, and he's afraid they're going to find him rude for saying it, but of course it doesn't mean a thing to them. Uh, it is the same here with some people, is it not? The contempt, the fear, the tribalism? Well, so I came to begin to change that. Entirely on your own initiative, said Oye. It is the only initiative I acknowledge, Shevik said, smiling in dead earnest. Here's one fun moment, right, where we have him explaining how things work on Anaris. Now, note the difference between this and his assertions in his argument with Tyrion, right, in the previous chapter, or, you know, a couple decades ago, depending on your point of view, right? Um, there he was asserting we have the Odonian theory and that's how things are, right? Here he admits the potential of a of a gap, right? Um, it's true that most people on Anaris don't approve of my friends and I, right? We're not all this one unity, right? Um, things are, it's not a utopia. He acknowledges that now in a different way than he would have before, and yet he still is defending the PDC. There's no inkling here in his description of the kind of ulterior motives that Tyrion was suggesting about the PDC, right? Um, and they don't understand. It's not just that they like disagree or whatever, they can't comprehend the idea of him not having a government, right? Nominally, there's no government, but I mean, come on, there's an administration, right? You don't call it a government, but whatever, it's a government, right? And he says, no, no, it's really not, right? It really doesn't work that way on Anaris. And so on the one hand, right, he's right, they're wrong, they just don't get it, right? The system, the, the anarchical system on, a, on Anaris is deeper fundamentally deeper than they comprehend. It's not just a sham. It's not just a facade. Um, right? No, it's totally not. Um, we see, uh, oh, by the way, one the other, I, think, I, I didn't quote this one, but did you, did you catch that line when he first asks about women? Right? He says, I have a question about women. And of course, they immediately assume he's wanting sex, right? And so they're like, oh, we can take care of all that. No worries. We can get you anything you want. And, uh, and then, did you catch that line when they're like, um, uh, you know, we've heard stories about things that go on there in Anaris, but I'm sure whatever your, you know, tastes are, we can, we can, we can handle it, right? We can, we can, uh, we, we can arrange for it. Um, and he has not the faintest idea what they're talking about, right? But, but notice the way in which this sort of sexual situation in Anaris, the vague understanding, like the rumors that they have heard on Urus about the sort of openness of sexuality on, on Anaris has led them to assume like 
there's like these literally unspoken sexual perversions, right? Who knows? Like what it, what it, I have no idea what's in Oye and, and, and I don't know how to pronounce P-A-E. I don't know if that's Paye or Pay. Um, anyway, I'm going to go with Pay. Um, what, 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 uh, what, what Oye, anyway, what they, what they're saying, like, they, they um, I don't know what is actually in their mind. Like, I think, like, Exactly, Curita, whatever kinky stuff you guys get up to on the moon, right? Um, we'll do our best because we're professionals. Yeah, that does seem to be uh, their attitude, Curita. And we'll do our best to to uh, accommodate whatever you guys do, right? Um, and of course, it's it's nothing like so strange as uh, the way that they seem to think of it. But again, it's, it's, it's another one of those moments where we can kind of see, uh, we get this insight into the assumptions that they make about Anaris. Um, and we might suspect that it might be kind of like the situation that Tyrion was describing, except in reverse, right? Um, oh yeah, those Anaresti up on the moon, you, you would never want to live in the moon. Like they're freaks up there, right? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, more, more assumptions uh, about, uh, about, about Uros. But all the people he met and all the people he saw in the smallest country village were well-dressed, well-fed, and, contrary to his expectations, industrious. They did not stand about, sullenly waiting to be ordered to do things. Just like Anaresti, they were simply busy getting things done. It puzzled him. He had assumed that if you removed a human being's natural incentive to work, his initiative, his spontaneous creative energy, and replaced it with external motivation and, co and coercion, he would become a lazy and careless worker. But no careless workers kept those lovely farmlands or made the superb cars and comfortable trains. The lure and compulsion of profit was evidently a much more effective replacement of the natural initiative than he had been led to believe. He would have liked to talk to some of these sturdy, self-respecting looking people he saw in the small towns and to ask them, for instance, if they considered themselves to be poor. For if these were the poor, he had to revise his understanding of the word. Okay. Um, yeah, Nancy says, um, uh, maybe this is cynical, but I feel like he's getting a very curated experience. Yeah, I, I think he is getting a very curated experience. Um, I suspect, I too suspect that Shevik is being manipulated in the tours that he's being given of Urus. But there's more than that here. That's, that's, that's valid. And I think that that's an important thing, that kind of doubt that we have, and our doubts are being fueled. Uh, Chifoyalisk, the Thuvian, right? Um, who is the Thuvian physicist who's there uh, and going around with him, who is not of their government, who is a representative, who belongs to a, a foreign government, who is an enemy of theirs, right? Um, he's the one who delights in pointing out uncomfortable things and seems to be constantly giving Shevik these signals, right, about the, uh, about the government. So yeah, Nancy, we have lots of reasons to suspect that uh, Shevik is being manipulated here. But at the same time, I don't think that that invalidates his observations, right? The assumptions about Urasti society that he is finding being undermined, even if it turns out, as it will turn out, that there are plenty of poor people who are really poor, right? And that these people are not, in fact, the poor of Urus. Um, nevertheless, um, the assumption 
is more than that, right? Yes, Oris isn't quite as universally pretty as it's being made to look here, right? Um, he is being shown around to the nice bits. But his reaction goes deeper than that, right? Um, he assumed that people in a capitalistic society, right? If your only motivation to work is purely external, if it's not your own initiative and spontaneous creative energy leading you to do work, if, if you're doing work because you have to, clearly you're going to do work badly, right? I mean, that seems completely intuitive and obvious to him. But what he finds is that doesn't seem to be true. So, okay, these people are probably not the poor, but they still are working for their own motive, with their own motivations, right? The lure and compulsion of profit um, was a much more effective replacement of natural initiative than he thought, right? Um, so it turns out that works, right? Um, notice what this shows us about his assumptions, right? Uh, his assumptions, just like uh, remember as a teenager, them not understanding about prisons, right? Why would you stay in the prison if you didn't want to be there, right? They just, they fundamentally don't get how the society could work. We can see him not getting how self-interest works, right? Um, it's on the basis of self-interest. It's not a purely external force. It's not just the fact that they're, you know, he, he imagined them standing around sullenly waiting to be ordered to do things, right? That was his image of Erasti society. But no, they're not waiting for somebody to order them to do things. They're motivated personally motivated to do them for profit, right? And maybe for other reasons too, self-preservation in other ways, but they're personally motivated, right? Um, in other words, one of the things that we see here is maybe there's not such a huge gap between their societies as he had thought. This leads us to the question, so why is Shevik there? Why did he go to Urus? Um, why does he go? What's he doing? He's there on his own initiative? Okay. What's his motivation? Initiative? Spontaneous, crea spontaneous creative energy? Does he have something to gain from going to Urus? Why is he doing it? I mean, the, notice that connection with the word initiative, right? Um, initiative, his own initiative is the reason he said he came, right? He doesn't acknowledge any other initiative than his own, right? Is that why? Is that the whole reason why? Um, why are they having him? Why are they hosting him? Lavishly hosting him at great expense. Right? Why is he their guest? Out of respect? Right? Because he's a galactically known physicist? Right? Um, so respect for him? That's their motive? That's why they're having him? Mm, now, might be a little bit more. Might be something else. Right? Another guy with too many vowels in his name nodded. Well, we've got the goods all right. But you know, you're the man who can tell us when to scrap this whole job, throw it all away. This is the engineer, of course, at the space, uh, uh, the space 
with with the spaceships. Throw it away? What do you mean? Remember, he doesn't understand garbage. Doesn't understand trash. They don't do trash in Anaris. I, they don't have enough to throw stuff away. I didn't get it when like his pajamas got thrown away, right? Just use it and chuck it, right? Anyway, faster than light travel. Oegio, Oegio, Oegio said. Transilience. The old physics says it isn't possible. The Terrans say it isn't possible. But the but but the Hainish, who after all invented the drive we use now, say that it is possible. Only they don't know how to do it because they're just learning temporal physics from us. Evidently, if it's in anybody's pocket, anybody in the known worlds, Dr. Shevik, it's in yours. Now it comes out, it seems, right? Um, they want something from him, right? At the end of chapter one, he says, well, you have your anarchist. What are you going to do with him, right? Um, and of course, the more we learn through chapter two, of course, about the Pravic language, we know that in saying that, that sentence that he said was obviously inionic, right? Um, because in Pravic, it wouldn't have, he, those pronouns don't work that way, right? He wouldn't have said, now you have your anarchist, what are you going to do with him, right? He couldn't even have uttered that sentence in Pravic. So in Iotic, saying this, he is ascribing to them a kind of ownership. He is characterizing himself as possessed, right? And as if he is going to perform a function, a function like they have a function that they want him to perform, right? What are you going to do with him? Um, but he, uh, um, he doesn't know, right? It seems to be a genuine question in a sense, right? Um, oh, cool. James Stevens says, didn't he think it was odd uh, that they all had so many pockets? Yeah, yeah remember uh, he comments on, on the he's fascinated by all the pockets that the Urosti have. That's, that's, I didn't think of that, uh, James, in connection with this moment about, uh, about uh, faster than light travel being in somebody's pocket, right? Because of course, you have to have lots of pockets if you possess lots of things and you need place to keep all of your stuff, right? Uh, Shevik doesn't have so many pockets. Um, but apparently they believe that faster than light travel is in his pocket. And that, and remember how the uh, physicists were annoyed, except not the Thuvian, right? But the others are annoyed that he spent so much time with the engineers, almost as if they were afraid he might twig to what they are looking for, right? Um, as I said before, it's certainly possible, especially on a first reading, to be reading, you know, chapters one through four and to feel that you're reading something like, or at least chapters one through three, and feel like you're reading something like an idealization of Anaris, right? Anaris is the utopia, Urus is a dystopia. Um, and that's the whole, that's the whole thing again, right? Like in the, in the cover of my book, which I like, right? You know, we've got arid, barren world and rich, fertile world, right? And yet we have the ironic, you know, with like the, the barren, nasty one is the utopia 
and the the lush fertile one is the dystopia right it's uh it's all it's all good right it's all cool um that seems to work but i don't think that's the case at least i think it's it's, it's a good deal more complex with that right especially the way that that reading seems even more compelling when we could, i mean the, the the parallels between urus and us right urus looks a lot like earth right and their culture is a lot like our culture or a slight exaggeration of our culture and uh and so therefore so many of the criticisms of urus so many of the dystopian elements of urus seem like such a a, a transparent indictment right of modern american culture that it's you know it's it's uh, again makes it even more tempting to be like ah and there's an urus right the ideal alternative and again this is what you know can lead you to say like okay so this book is so all right i, I get it Le Guin, right we're pro-communism pro right communism good capitalism bad um I, I totally understand people who have that reaction to the book but i don't think that's the situation i think it's a lot more complex than that um and one of the places where we most obviously see the complex that complexity is in the problems that we see in anaris and those start coming in really strongly in chapter four, um, Sabul. You, I don't think I find it impossible to have you know that um, particular sort of set of assumptions um, about Anaris being a utopia, right? And uh, you know, sort of totally idealized. To me, can't um, um, can't survive my meeting with Sabul. Right? Um, let's look at. Okay, well, actually, before we do that, I was going to say, let's look at Shevik's meeting with, with Sabal before that. Remember this exchange that he has uh, with the other physicists, the Erasti physicists? Um, Sabal was senior member of the Abenai Institute in Physics, said Shevik. I used to work with him. An older rival, jealous, meddled with your books, been clear enough. We hardly need an explanation, Oye, said the fourth man, uh, Chifoylisk, in a harsh voice. He was middle-aged, a swarthy, stocky man with the fine hands of a desk worker. He was the only one of them whose face was not completely shaven. He had left the chin bristling to match his short iron-gray head hair. No need to pretend that all, you, that, you, that all you Odonian brothers are full of brotherly love, he said. Human nature is human nature. Shevik's lack of response was saved from seeming significant by a volley of sneezes. So what just happened here? <clears throat> Jafoyalisk is reading between the lines, right? Oh yeah, no, we told we we parsed the relationship between you and Sabal from the beginning, right? He's a jealous old rival. He's been meddling with your books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry, but we don't even need an. Don't even ask him to explain about Sabal. Oh yeah, we don't even need that, right? We totally get it. Now, when I first read this, two things led me to interpret the situation in a particular way, right? One is the fact that, they, not in that way, let me just not be coy about that, I, I thought they, was, they were obviously wrong, right? Because that seemed naturally like this is, a, this is just like all those other assumptions that they're making, right? Um, the, you know, the, the, all, all the things that they get wrong about interesting society because they just can't imagine it, right? Um, this seemed to be another one, right? So look at them. Here they are assuming 
this thing about his relationship with his colleague because they just can't understand probably how colleague relationships work in an NRSD setting. And that last sentence seemed to justify that. Shevik's lack of response was saved from seeming significant, which I 100% read as he's offended, right? He's offended by this, but it would have been awkward to come in and be like, dude, you're wrong, right? But fortunately, that awkward moment is uh, eased over by his sneezes, right? So the subject just gets dropped. But after I read chapter four and then come back and read this chapter again, all of a sudden, what is the significance in his lack of response, right? Maybe his lack of response doesn't have the uh, significance that I assumed that it had at first. Um, here's his first meeting with Sabo. Sabo has just told him to learn Iotic and given him the books, um, the Iotic physics books, uh, practice with. Shevik turned to go. Sabo raised his growl. Keep those books with you. They're not for general consumption. The young man paused, turned back, and said after a moment in his calm, rather diffident voice, I don't understand. Don't let anybody else read them. Shevik made no response. Sabo got up again and came close to him. Listen, you're now a member of the Central Institute of Sciences, a physics syndic working with me, Sabo. You follow that? Privilege is responsibility, correct? I'm to acquire knowledge which I'm not to share, Shevik said after a brief pause, stating the sentence as if it were a proposition in logic. If you found a pack of explosive caps in the street, would you share them with every kid that went by? Those books are explosives. Now do you follow me? Yes. All right. Sabol turned away, scowling with what appeared to be an what appeared to be an endemic, not a specific rage. Oh wait, so his rage is impersonal? Huh. Fascinating. Shevik left, carrying the dynamite carefully with revulsion and devouring curiosity. I wonder what's in Sabol's cage. Is it a woman? Probably not a woman, right? It's not his issue. Um, he's not like the sexy tables, right? But he's got something in a cage, it would seem, doesn't he? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Nancy says, someone ought to make a list of all the times in this book Shevik says, I don't understand. It seems to happen at significant moments. Uh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, what just happened here? What just happened here? Shevik is shocked, right? You know, I, I'm to acquire knowledge which I am not to share, right? He's trying to parse it. I can't follow that idea. Um, he doesn't understand when Sabol says they're not for general consumption. That is a counter-cultural idea, right? You share everything. If you don't, then you're possessing things. Nobody possesses anything. Right? There's no such thing as private property. 
you don't own anything. If you own something, then you yourself are possessed, as we've already seen, right? So this is a, a strange idea. Now, but, but wait. Um, um, wait. He's just trying to explain it, right? So he... Uh, He says, you're now a member of the Central Institute of Sciences, a physics syndic working with me, Samuel. You follow that? Privilege is responsibility, correct? Okay, so here's my question. Do you follow that? Let me ask that question in a different way. Did Samuel just make it better or worse with that explanation? I'm going with worse. Right, um, his explanation is as counterintuitive, as countercultural, as his initial statement. Right, you're now a member of the Institute of, of Science Sciences. Right, the Central Institute of Science. You're now a member of. Okay, so what? I now have access to things that we keep from other people. I've come to the inner circle and now can be can be allowed to know things that everyone else in this society is not allowed to know. Seriously, think about I mean, think ex how exactly contrary to the 16 year old speech that Shevik made. That is right. Um, it's yeah, Joyce, exactly. The concept of privilege does not accord with Shevik's worldview. Remember the dessert? This came up with the dessert. This is one of the ways in which Shevik parsed this in a really, really tiny thing, right? Um, as a sort of little piece of synecdoche for the bigger issue, right? Remember his problem with dessert? He loves dessert. Why did he stop eating dessert? Remember why he stopped eating dessert? There at the Institute? Whenever he went to meal, there was always dessert. Some left over. He'd have two because he loves dessert and it's awesome. Right? Yeah, Nancy, James, Kristen, because not everybody could have it. Right? Everybody doesn't get it. Um, good, Nancy. He felt he was getting something special due to his status. Right? Most places he'd lived and worked, they didn't have dessert every night. Right? There's, of course, local variations in everything, but most of the places he'd lived didn't have the stuff to make dessert out of. It just didn't, they didn't, they didn't have it. But we might think, hang on a second, that's totally natural, right? Some places are going to have more, some places are going to have less. No, not with the PDC, right? The whole point of the PDC is that they're distributing everything equally. You're, the whole point of having this central group is that the, the, the only thing that's supposed to be centralized in their whole society is the distribution, right? Monitoring production and distributing everything so that everybody gets the same, so that there is no privilege. I mean, otherwise, like the people who lived on rich, fertile land would have much, and the people who live out in the desert would have nothing, right? And they all die starvation so since the society as a whole relies upon 
this community spirit, right, about equal sharing among everybody, you've got the central distributors, right, who distribute everything unequally, apparently. This is like the expose of dessert, right? Um, the fact that people at the Central Institute of Sciences get dessert every day when nobody else does doesn't sit with his moral digestion, right? Um, and now Sabo is suggesting this in an even bigger way, in an even broader way, right? Um, now, so that's the shocker. What? Look at his second explanation. So his first attempt to explain would seem to make it entirely worse, right? You belong to the Institute now, so you can have access to this, but other people can't. Doesn't help. Okay, well, what about his explosives metaphor? If you found a pack of explosive caps in the street, would you share them with every kid who went by? Those books are explosives. Okay, does that make it better? Or does that make it worse? Notice what he's suggesting. What is Sabo hiding behind here, right? Community spirit, right? It's what's best for everybody. Totally. Totally what's best for everybody. It's all good, right? You're serving the community by holding this stuff back, right? Doesn't matter which side of the door you're on when the door is locked, though, as we've already learned. Um, Does it work? Are the books like explosives? Is that even true? In what sense are they like explosives? On the one hand, this is obviously a false analogy, right? Remember, as uh, Tyrion said, you can prove anything by analogy. You wouldn't give explosives to a child because any child can hurt themselves with it, right? Um, they are dangerous to anyone who is not specially trained in how to handle explosives safely, right? Okay, is that, so is that true of these books? If you handed these books to a kid on the street, I mean, to like literalize the metaphor, is it gonna hurt them? If you handed, if you just went out and handed them to somebody, is it gonna hurt them? No, of course not. These are books of theotic physics. No one's going to understand them. If they're explosives, they're explosives that the kid in the street could not possibly ignite, right? This book is going to be entirely inscrutable to other people. So it's not like an explosive in the sense that you, you, it's your responsibility to protect other people from this, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, what makes them explosive is not that they're physics books. Nancy, exactly as you say, it's that they're in eotic. It's eotic books. Nancy argues that it's not the, it's not the uh, physics books that are the dynamite. It's the eotic grammar book that's dynamite. Um, 
just as the child would hurt himself and others possibly with the dynamite if he found them in the street. So the average anorosity citizen, and notice how odd that phrase is, average anorosity citizen, aren't we all equal in anoros, right? Um, if they got an eotic grammar book and learned eotic, that's, they could harm themselves and others unintentionally because they don't have the training to know how to handle it. In other words, holy crap, Tyrion was right, right? Tyrion was right. There is, Sable is saying, there is a conspiracy to keep knowledge of Urus, information about Urus. We don't want anyone to know Eotic, right? It's anorasty policy not to let anyone learn Eotic, not just anybody, right? There's something transgressive that Sable is doing, right? And is kind of bringing Shevik into here, right? Because you're not supposed to be communicating with Urus. You, it's bad for you to know their language. And that's really unsettling, right? To certainly would have been incredibly unsettling to the 16-year-old Shevik. Um, okay, let's, uh, I like the timer. It makes it easier. Um, sometimes uh, in the old days, I'd come to, I mean, I, I have a clock. I mean, just on my computer screen, I have a clock at the top. But I'd be like, wait a second, didn't I start class late today? How late did I start class today? That's always the question I have to myself. Um, but, uh, but of course, now with the timer, I say, no, this is actually how long we've been having class. It's kind of handy. Um, I have a couple more slides, but, uh, but uh, no, 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 no. We don't cut off at two hours, Neil. But it's when I should stop because I don't want to keep you guys up until, well, again, you know, Noam's over there like, hey, you know, the sun's up now, right? Um, but um, uh, but I, I, try not to, I try not to keep past two hours because that's, that's just, uh, that's, uh, it's irresponsible. Um, but it's 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 all right. We're actually almost done. I only have so the answer, by the way, is three, four. Okay, shoot, five slides I didn't get to, but that's okay. That's okay. Seriously, we're almost done. Um, I yeah yeah we're good. Um, so let's let, let's stop there. We'll come. We'll 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 pick this up here. I want to start next time with Sable and his uh, uh, attitude towards academic freedom, right? We'll begin with that next time. Um, one other thing I want to be looking at, and in this we're going to be looking at a bunch of passages still from chapters one through four on this, thinking about Shevik's own sense of his identity, the issue of Shevik's isolation. I want to be looking at Shevik's dream. I want to be looking at Shevik and his encounter with his, with, excuse me, the mother, right? I almost said his mother, um, which would be a non-pravic way to say it. So all that kind of stuff I want to, uh, uh, I want to, to look at next time. Okay. So we'll do that stuff and do read chapters five and six. There'll be some stuff from chapters five and six. I want to look at, by the way, uh, I knew I was going to do this today. The, uh, title, I, I, those those ironic classes when I don't get to the passage that I drew the title of the class from, um, at least we got to talking about the general subject. So 
I'll end the class just by giving that away. Um, the reference that I made in the title of this class, I Am Still Here, is the fort at Drio, the fort where, um, uh, where Odo was imprisoned for years, right? The one that he's told is no longer there, and then uh, Chafoyalus cheerfully points it out, right? That his colleagues were lying to, to uh, Shevik just then, right? And that sense that he has when looking at the tower, right? Looking at the, at the fort, uh, which is also the prison, uh, Odo's prison, um, that it is there old and ruinous and ugly, but still saying, I am still here, right? Um, that's what the reference was to. And I hope that even with uh, just the, the few passages that we, uh, uh, that we have left that I didn't get to, um, still, even with as far as we've gotten, that uh, you can begin to see the relevance of that, uh, of that passage, of that image, which I think is such a powerful, it's an isolated image, right? Um, I think it's such a powerful one in this, uh, you know, first section, uh, this first phase of the book. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Don't forget Nightfall tomorrow. Uh, please don't forget to support us in the campaign if you have, and again, I say this uh, not only to those of you who are here live, of course, but uh, but to our listeners as well. If you have enjoyed the Mythgard Academy, if you have uh, been listening to these classes and, and uh, you know, they have uh, 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 brought any pleasure to your morning commute or your, uh, your, your exercise or wherever it is that you listen to them, um, I hope that you will consider donating to support us uh, so that we can help to keep these things going. Um, if all of the listeners who download and, uh, you know, watch on YouTube and everything else, um, you know, if everybody donated five or ten bucks, it would make a, an enormous difference uh, to Signum University and everything that we're trying to do. So I hope that uh, uh, that you will consider donating here during, as, during our campaign as we try to support the Signum Annual Fund and uh, make it through to achieve the, uh, the the very NRSD goal of survival uh, for another year. Um, okay, um, so thanks very much, everybody. And uh, I will see you guys next week for our next class on the Dispossessed, and hopefully many of you tomorrow night uh, for Nightfall, which I'm really excited about. So thanks, everybody, and I will see you soon one way or the other. Bye now. <laughs>